Okay. Go ahead and grab a seat, everybody. We're going to get started. Great. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Tom. I have the privilege of providing leadership to the church plant here as the pastor, and I am thrilled to be here with you guys tonight. Um, if you were with us last week, we started a new series last Sunday, um, going through the book of Galatians. It's really a letter, um, <clears throat> and uh, the series is called Grace Alone. Uh, we, we're in a unique, we're in a unique uh, uh, season as a church plant in that we're forming. So we're, we're laying a foundation. We're laying the foundation that we're gonna build on as a church. And like, like any structure, anything that would need a foundation, the foundation's really important because if the foundation is off, that building is screwed, okay? It's in trouble. It's ultimately gonna topple over. So the season that we're in now is we're in a foundation-laying season. So if you were with us when we first kind of started doing these worship gatherings, we, uh, we went through a series called What is the Church? We were, we were exploring what the scriptures say the church is. I'm convinced that our culture, our Western consumer culture, has no idea what the church is. They think the church is a business. They think the church wants your money. They think the church is an event. They think a church is a production. They think a, a pastor is like a CEO. They have these misconceptions about what the church is. So as we get started, we, we said we want to we want to define what the church is biblically. Because if we're going to plant a church, if we're going to be a church, we need to know what the church actually is. Okay. If you've missed any of those episodes or the, any of those episodes, like we're a TV show, if you missed any of those uh, any of those messages, they're on the website. You can listen to them. Everything's free. Um, that'll kind of get you caught up. But we're in a season now where we're laying a foundation. Yeah, we're on the same page about what the church is. Great. But now, what's going to be the foundation? What's going to be the most important thing to us as a church? That's why we're going through the book of Galatians, because we're talking about this idea of grace, this idea of the gospel of Jesus, okay? If you're with us last week, we talked about how, um, uh, how the gospel is, uh, is the most important thing. We never move on from it. We never add to it. It's God's grace alone that rescues us. And when I say the word gospel, the gospel just literally means good news, Okay, it's the good news of what God has done in and through Jesus, okay? It's our most important thing. And the reason we're going through the book of Galatians is because Galatians is really unique in a beautiful way and that it's kind of like confrontational about the gospel. It's kind of like uh, Paul, the, the, the apostle Paul who wrote the letter, he doesn't like mix his words. He's very, very clear. <clears throat> the, the book of Galatians unapologetically promotes the supremacy of the gospel and never moving on from it, never adding to it. So hopefully you have your Bibles. If you do, go ahead and grab them. Flip to Galatians chapter one. And while you're flipping there, I'll kind of bring you up to speed of what we covered last week. I'll do it really quickly. Uh, last week, we talked about um, the danger of adding to the, to the gospel, that whenever we add to the gospel of Jesus, what we're actually doing is we're actually distorting it, okay? <clears throat> and when we rely on anything other than Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to make us acceptable in God's sight, then we're adding to the gospel, Okay, when we, do, um, <clears throat> when we do that, we're placing our faith in something that cannot save us. Think about this. When we add to the gospel, we're putting our trust, our faith, in our performance. 
Okay, and when we do that, it's dangerous because our performance can't save us. And the reason our performance can't save us is because it's not perfect. Every single one of us in the room, there's been times when we've done things that have been admirable, honorable, yes, but there are plenty of times where we've done self-centered things. So our performance, if that's what we're putting our trust into, we're in trouble. Because if the standard of a holy God is perfection, and I'm an imperfect being, then me putting my trust in my imperfect performance means I don't stand a chance. When we add to the gospel, when we add to the finished work of what Jesus has done, we are putting our faith, we're putting our trust in our performance. That's why it's dangerous, okay? But here's the cool thing, the beautiful thing about the gospel. The good news about the gospel is that Jesus' performance was perfect. It was absolutely flawless and perfect. And the good news is that he offers it to us freely as a gift. It's grace. So that was last week. This week, we're gonna talk about this idea of freedom, actually. Paul's gonna continue on and how the gospel really brings freedom. I remember uh, the first time I visited the Middle East, and uh, I was a little concerned because growing up here in America, what you hear about the Middle East is that, like, if you show up, they're gonna kill you. It's like, you have this, there's this, Honestly, I think there's a misrepresentation of the Middle East in our media, but the first time I ever went to, to the Middle East, I, I land at the airport, and, and, uh, and overhead they have like, every, I think it's every hour on the hour, they have like an alarm essentially that triggers the, the, the prayer, the hourly prayer, I think it's hourly, um, that the Muslims would pray, right? So everybody would stop, and it was like this, I, I'm in a foreign place, because alarms don't go off in Southern California that, you know, that cue prayer time. It was just an interesting thing. The moment I landed, I was like, this is not, like I'm not in Kansas anymore kind of thing, you know? <clears throat> and uh, I stayed with, uh, it was great. I got to spend a really, like about a week there with um, some of the churches. I was in Dubai. And, uh, and I'm talking with one of our hosts, my buddy Mick. And he says, he was just kind of describing the differences between living there and living in other parts of the world. Um, he's English, and he lives in Dubai, and he said, uh, he goes, well, the biggest difference is they censor the news. He's like, in the Middle East, they censor the news. They, like, <clears throat> if, you try to, if you try to write anything that criticizes the leadership, like of the government, it's, it's like the royal family, the sheik, not only is it not gonna make the news, but you're gonna be in trouble. So it's like, it's kind of frustrating because things will go down, and we won't really know about it. We'll hear about it like kind of secondhand, almost like people spreading the word um, of like just weird things that the, that the royal family would do, <clears throat> um, but it would never get reported because they censor the news. I'm sure you guys are familiar with China and like their crazy internet censorship. Like you can't have Facebook. You can't make a Google search in China. It's nuts. Something that we take for granted of like, I'm, I have a question, I'm just gonna Google it. Like you can't do that in China. The government censors you. It's very different. I remember the first time I was being confronted with different places. That when I first started kind of traveling and seeing the world, I was confronted with these realities of there are different places that have different amounts, I guess if you will, amounts of freedom that I'm used to as an American. And it got me thinking about this idea of like where does our freedom come from? Like does the, does the state determine our freedom? Does where we live determine our freedom? Do our leaders in politics determine our freedom? What determines our freedom? Where does it come from? 
And like I said, today we're going to talk about the freedom that we have in the gospel. <clears throat> okay, we're going to talk about how it's only the gospel of Jesus that can truly provide you real freedom. Okay? So before we jump into the scriptures, I'm going to pray for us. Will you join me in prayer? Oh, Father, thank you for your grace. Um, thank you that you deeply love every single heart in this room. Whether or not um, each of us are like experiencing that in the moment, I thank you that that's true. That that's the good news of the gospel. That you, who you are, um, your character, your love is not um, determined by our performance. It's not determined by how we feel. It's not determined by what kind of week we've had but rather who you are. So I thank you for that and the peace that comes from that and the security that comes from that. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us tonight, encourage us and teach us about freedom, show us the areas where we're living in bondage, show us the areas where we're missing out on enjoying you, missing out on obeying you, missing out on operating like you. We wanna follow you, Jesus, that's why we're here. So please, God, if anything that I say or do gets in the way of your agenda, like shut me up. Um, I love you, I wanna honor my friends, and I wanna honor you, Jesus. So be with us, encourage us, we love you, amen. Okay, go ahead and grab your Bibles. You're, hopefully you've already found Galatians chapter one. Um, tonight's gonna be a little unique. I'm gonna go through a bunch of scripture, okay? We're, we, we did like nine verses last week. We're gonna finish out. We're gonna do verses one, like chapter one starting in verse 10 and we're gonna go all the way through chapter two, verse 10. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a little bit of scripture that I'm gonna talk. I'm gonna read a little bit of scripture I'm gonna talk so I'll kind of like, we'll make our way through it, okay? So Galatians chapter one starting in verse 10. This is Paul writing to the churches, the Christians, the followers of Jesus in the region of Galatia. It's modern day Turkey. He says this, for, I am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I'm gonna pause here really quickly. Paul's touching on the idea of being a people pleaser. Do we have any people pleasers in the room? Raise your hand. yeah. There's like five of you that raise your hand, the rest of you are liars, okay? Everybody in the room, to some degree or another, struggles with this idea of pleasing people, okay? Being a people pleaser. The Bible calls this fear of man. All through the Proverbs, you see like, it is not wise to fear man. It is not wise. Um, I can remember, it was funny, the moment I started prepping this, like my brain went back to a time in my life where I totally gave in to peer pressure, like I totally gave into fear of man. I totally wanted to be a people pleaser. Uh, my first real job was working for Brandon and Jill at a pizza place that they were managing. Brandon and Jill hired me. I don't know what they were thinking. <clears throat> I was like, yeah, whatever. I was not a, not a decent person. But either way, I worked for Brandon and Jill at this pizza place. And there was, like right when we first started, uh, there was one of the guys that was on the staff. And I... I just kind of, like, I wanted his approval. We were hanging out one night. And he offered me a cigar. And I was like, and like, <laughs> it's so sad. I had zero tolerance, okay, for one. So the guy offers me a cigar, and I wanted him to like me. I wanted him to approve of me. I wanted him to think I was cool. So I was like, yeah, definitely, give me the cigar. So he gives me a cigar, and <laughs> I'm like embarrassed to tell you this story, okay? So <laughs> just love me through this, please, okay? 
So he gives me the cigar, and I'm thinking, okay, I have to inhale this whole thing. So here's the thing. So for those of you that are not familiar with cigar smoking, you do not inhale cigars. Cigars are like way more potent than cigarettes. You, you're just supposed to like smoke it, right? Just take it into your mouth and taste it and whatever, right? So I'm this young kid. Sorry, my parents. I don't know if you guys have heard this story, but smoking's not a sin. It can be, but it's not a sin indirectly. So, but either way, uh, so I'm this young guy, I'm smoking this, this cigar, I'm inhaling the entire, I finish almost the entire cigar, okay? And I vomited, like I have never vomited in my life. It was like, I, it was violent. Like it was, it was powerful, okay? It was gross. <clears throat> I literally, I gave in a peer pressure, I wanted this guy to think that I was cool, I wanted him to approve of me so bad, Whenever, whenever fear of man enters into the equation, it usually dumb things are like come out, come out of that, all right? Fear of man, here's the other thing about fear of man. Fear of man will always result in a compromise of some sort, okay? I was totally, I had no tolerance to tobacco. I had no tolerance to it whatsoever, and I signed up to inhale an entire cigar. I compromised my health. I compromised all sorts of things in trying to get this guy's approval because I had the fear of man. I wanted to please people. I wanted to use this guy for his approval. Are you tracking with me? Here's the thing about fear of man. <clears throat> when, you, when you have fear of man, ultimately what you're doing is you are exchanging the approval that you have in the gospel and you're trading that for the approval of whoever's, whoever the person is, whoever you are experiencing this peer pressure from, whoever you're experiencing this desire to please this person. What you're doing is you're exalting people above God, and you're lowering God below people. Are you seeing this? And here's the thing, living for the approval of others, it keeps you from enjoying that approval that you have in the gospel. It literally keeps you from being able to enjoy it. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here because I got a bunch of scripture to go through. But like I said, you will make compromises as you engage in, in, in desiring the approval of people. When you have fear of man, the compromises will come and will cause you to do really dumb things like trying to inhale an entire cigar with zero tolerance, okay? It'll also lead you to do really dumb things like the Galatians were doing in following these false teachers, these religious, um, this religious crowd in adding to the gospel like we've been talking about, adding to the finished work of Jesus, <clears throat> the crowd is going along saying that these false teachers are saying, hey, it's Jesus, what he's done, plus your Bible reading, Jesus plus the Jewish law, Jesus plus circumcision. <clears throat> and people were going along with that because they were giving into the crowd, they're giving into fear of man. And Paul's saying, that's not my story. I'm not giving into the fear of man. It never, ever turns out well spiritually. And Paul's saying you either fear God or you fear man. You either seek the approval of God or you seek the approval of man. It's one or the other. So before we keep going tonight, I think it's important, like what's your story? Where are you at with this? Do you find yourself believing that the opinion of man carries more weight than the opinion of the creator of the universe? Are you like me? Is there a time when you give in to peer pressure or is there a time when you recognize that you want someone else's approval and you're willing to make compromises, you're willing to sacrifice specific things to get it? Do you bump Jesus off the throne 
as the most worthy, the most exalted, and put somebody else or something else in his place. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe you're like, I really want this person to think highly of me. So maybe I won't like directly throw my coworker under the bus, but like, I won't defend him for sure. Maybe like neighbors or friends, people that you look up to. Who is it for you? What's your story? Who do you find yourself trying to please? Who do you find yourself trying to impress? I'll be honest with you. I find myself trying to impress and earn the approval of my wife all the time. And it's dangerous because she's not God. Like, yes, her opinion of me matters. It really does. But the moment I elevate her, the moment I elevate her above God, I'm literally putting expectations on her that she could never in a million years meet, ever. But I find myself doing that, honestly, more than often than I'd like to admit. What's your story? Okay, Paul says he's not concerned with the approval of man. His desire is to please God and God alone. His desire is to please God, the one whose approval he already has in the gospel. Paul's like, I'm not working for the approval of God. I already have it. So I want to please him just because I have his approval. He loves me. So for the sake of the gospel, Paul, as we're going to keep reading here, he's going to defend himself and his message from three attacks. Okay, like we talked about these false teachers that were coming into the the region of Galatia. Okay, Paul's gonna defend himself and his message. Here's the thing. Paul spends effort defending himself because he knows why they're trying to discredit him. Okay, it's not, he's not like just trying to protect his reputation. The reason Paul's defending himself is because it's kind of like, have you ever seen um, like any like courtroom dramas on TV? Okay, usually you have somebody who's claiming to be innocent, right? They're on trial. Like, hey, my message, my claim is that I'm innocent. And then you have a def- like a, uh, the, the, the attorney that's defending them, okay? And then you have the prosecuting attorney. And the prosecuting attorney is trying to get this guy proven guilty. And the first thing that they do in every story, in every TV drama you've ever seen, is they go after that person's character. Is it true or is it, isn't it true that when you were five, you, you stole a candy bar from Walmart? Isn't it true that you, you, you lied to your parents in seventh grade about whose house you were staying the night at? And they're like, yeah. And it's like, okay, so if you lied about that, what makes, why should we believe you that what you're telling, uh, what you're telling us now about your innocence is true? They attack the person's character. They, they attack them so that they can discredit their message. They can discredit their claim to be innocent. Are you following me? Okay, that's what was happening in Galatia. These false teachers were going, no, you, Paul, we're gonna discredit Paul's reputation so the, the, his message of the gospel, Jesus alone, grace alone, they could tarnish him. If they could tarnish him, they could tarnish, tarnish his message. That's the only reason Paul's defending himself. He's not being this overly defensive person. He's going, no, no, no. If I don't, if I don't defend myself in such a way that I actually have credibility here, then they're gonna take my message and just distort it and that's what they're trying to do. So that's, what, that's where we go here. Paul's gonna defend himself for the sake of the message, for the sake of the gospel. Let's keep reading verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, this is the first attack, guys. Okay, Paul's version of the gospel is not one that he came up with himself. That's what they're claiming. They're claiming that, okay, Paul, your message of the gospel, just Jesus, 
Not Jesus plus the ceremonial laws, not Jesus plus circumcision, not Jesus plus what you do, but Jesus alone. That's Paul's message of the gospel. They're saying that that message of the gospel was just came from Paul's own reflection, his own meditation, his own thinking. It was like, it was like his. It was, they're basically saying that's just Paul's opinion. They're attacking his claim to be a true apostle. If you were with us last week, we talked about this idea of there's, there's basically two apostles in scripture. You have capital A apostle and lowercase a apostle. And the difference is capital A apostle, those are, those are people that were literally taught by Jesus in the flesh and then sent on the mission to proclaim that message, to proclaim that gospel by Jesus himself. Okay, everybody else is every other person who's been sent since. That's what the word apostle means, okay? So these, look, he talked about Paul defending his reputation. He's defending his reputation as a capital A apostle. Jesus taught me this message. Jesus sent me on this mission to declare this message. This isn't something that I came up with in my brain. This isn't something that like in my prayer time, I just went, oh yeah, I think this is what's real. No, Jesus himself taught Paul this and that's what was being attacked, okay? Paul says he got this message straight from Jesus. Let's keep reading verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Again, this is Paul writing to the Christians in Galatia. You've heard of my former life in Judaism as a Jew, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And as I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so like his peers, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Verse 15, but when he... Jesus, that's God, that's, that's, that's a triune God. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, it's non-Jews, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul is referring to his life prior to being a Christian, prior to following Jesus. Okay, and those of you guys that are familiar with Paul's story, Paul used to be Saul, and he has this encounter with the risen Jesus, Jesus in the flesh. <clears throat> and at that time, Saul, who was Paul here, Saul was basically like, he was like a terrorist. He would kill and murder Christians. Like he was set on a mission to destroy the church, the people. Again, it's not, an, it's not an institution. He tried to wipe Christianity off the planet. He was, he was set on, he was on a mission. He felt like he had an assignment to do that. He gave his life to do that. His time, his energy. Paul, honestly, Paul was a lot, kind of like ISIS. I mean, think about it. Very anti-Christian, trying to kill Christians, oppressing Christians. <clears throat> And here's the cool thing, Paul, here's the second attack I should say. The second attack was that Paul's version of the gospel was that he received that message from other Christians. Okay, if you're following along, it says <clears throat> that basically he goes, I didn't go up to anybody else. I didn't go to Jerusalem where the other apostles were to get that message. In fact, I got it from Jesus alone and it was like three years before I even went up to get it verified from these people. <clears throat> okay, these false teachers in Galatia, the reason they made that attack was because they could say something to the, to the tune of, hey, we were trained by those leaders in Jerusalem too. And Paul's not giving you the whole story. So they could, again, they're trying to discredit his apostleship that he got this message straight from Jesus. 
So Paul basically says, hey, my gospel didn't come from any of the other apostles either. I didn't get it from, I didn't get it from my own brain. I didn't get it from the other apostles who spent time with Jesus and got that message from Jesus. He says, I didn't get it from anybody else that came directly from Jesus. And as we keep reading here, he's gonna show that his God-given gospel message is the same message that the other apostles received as well. So they're actually gonna verify Paul's message. Okay, let's keep reading here. Verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, that's Jesus' brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches, to the Christians of Judea, that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. Okay, so you have Peter, he's an apostle, literally taught the gospel message directly from Jesus. He's an apostle. And James, Jesus' brother, taught the message of the gospel straight from Jesus himself, sent straight from Jesus himself. And you have all the Christians in the region of Judea, real place, they all verify Paul's version of the gospel that was being challenged by these false teachers. Are you tracking with me? Okay, so they all go, yes. Like Paul's message, is, it lines up perfectly with ours. It's, it's from God. It's the same thing that Jesus told these guys in the flesh. I remember... Um, God, I think it was two years ago. I I was doing this um, I was doing this prayer and prophecy training at the church in LA. It was it was great. It was basically like, what is prayer? How do we hear the voice of God? And what do we do with this? Like, how do we minister to each other in these ways? And it was a rich time. It was it was really good. I really enjoyed being able to serve them that way. And watching them get excited about hearing from God was awesome. At the end of our time, this young girl comes up to me. She's probably eighteen or nineteen years old. She comes up to me and, and she says, like, thank you. She introduces herself and she says, um, like, this isn't, even my, this isn't even my church. Like, I had a friend bring me here today. I'm so glad that I came. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And, um, and she seemed, like, totally fine. Like, kind of like a bubbly personality. Uh, she just seemed like a sweet, young, 18-year-old girl. And, and I just had this sense. I'm like, maybe I'm supposed to, I think I'm supposed to pray for this girl. So I just asked her quick, I'm like, hey, like, it's so nice to meet you. Like, do you mind if I just pray for you really quick? And she's like, yeah, that'd be so great, thank you. And I'm just praying over her, and I'm just like asking God to bless her. And, and, and then I'm, I'm, I kind of pause for just a moment of praying over her. And I'm like, God, is there anything that you, you, know, you have for this girl? Like, is there anything you want me to tell her, encourage her with? And, and God's like, clear as day. Not audibly, but like the voice of God in my spirit was like, is there any kids in the room? Jax is cool with this, I think. It's okay. Um, that she was sexually assaulted. Like just clear as day. And you can imagine, I'm like, I don't know this girl. Like how do I bring this up in prayer? <clears throat> so I'm kind of nervous at this point. I'm like, oh, what? Nah, that probably wasn't, that probably wasn't the spirit. That's just me. Like I didn't have, you know, I didn't have lunch today. I'm feeling funky. I'm just trying to justify it in my mind how that wasn't God speaking. And I can't, I can't shake it. I'm like, this is from the Lord. So I start praying over this girl with this information. And she just loses it. 
like sobbing uncontrollably. And you can imagine, like, you know how family time was a, a few minutes ago? Like everyone's talking, it's everything's normal. Imagine that, and then you just hear someone sobbing and wailing out of nowhere, and it's this young girl. So it's not just, it, it was just, it was kind of alarming. So she's, she just collapses into my arms, and she's sobbing, and I'm just praying the truth of the gospel over her. Like she's not dirty, Jesus is her purity. Like what, she, what happened to her isn't her fault. She didn't cause that to happen. And I can still, guys, I can still picture like the floor was like puddled in tears. Like just, she, I mean, she was ugly crying, like snot, and like <laughs> it was gnarly. But it was interesting because a couple days later, her older brother called Brad, who leads the church up there. He'll be with us next week. He called him and was like, hey dude, what, what went down with my sister? Like, who is this guy? Um, like, he knew all these things about my sister. Like, she didn't tell anybody. She'd been carrying this secret, the burden of this secret. I don't even know how long, but long enough to where it, God met her in that. But what was interesting was that this guy, her brother was convinced. I don't know if her brother follows Jesus, but he was convinced there's no other way for this pastor, me, to know these things unless God himself told him. I wasn't there when, when this assault happened. I had no idea. But my message lined up perfectly with the message that she had experienced in her life. That, that divine intervention, that's what, that's what Paul's getting at here. The affirmation from the other apostles, they're going, there's no way this guy Paul, who didn't spend time with us in Jesus, there's no way he would have this information unless God himself intervened and gave it to him. It's, it's miraculous. <clears throat> are, you guys, are you guys following me with this? Okay. Their stories lined up perfectly. Okay. He must have heard of God. The other apostles all affirmed that Paul's gospel lined up perfectly with what Jesus had taught them. Let's keep reading, starting now in verse, verse one of chapter two. We're almost done, guys, I promise. It's a lot of scripture, but it's good. Verse one, then after 14 years, I, Paul, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus, another guy, along with me. So picture this, Paul goes up with Barnabas, a partner, and Titus, a partner, Okay, <clears throat> goes up to Jerusalem where all, the, guy, all the, the Christians are, the apostles, the other apostles, capital A, are there. I went up because of a revelation set before them. I'm sorry, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, among the non-Jews, in order to make sure that I'm not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, verse four, yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Okay, this guy Titus, this is a big deal. This guy Titus, he's living proof of, God, of, of Paul's gospel. He's like, he's like his, his star witness to the claims that Paul's making about the truth and the reality of the gospel to these, to these false teachers, okay? Titus is proof that uncircumcised Gentile Christians are even possible, that they existed. Okay, remember, these false teachers, they're teaching Jesus plus ceremonial law. 
Jesus plus circumcision, that's how, that results in salvation. It's not just Jesus. You gotta observe the Jewish laws, okay? And Paul's going, hey, here's a Christian, and all the guys verify it. The other apostles are like, this guy, he has the spirit of God in him. He's a Christian. So Paul goes, here's a Gentile, non-Jew, non-circumcised, not following those rules, but filled with the Holy Spirit like a warm-blooded Christian. It's Paul's like, it's literally Paul's, it's star witness. He's going, I rest my case. Here's one. How are you gonna explain this? Okay? <clears throat> yes, these false brothers, they insisted that in order to be saved, Gentiles like Titus, non-Jews like Titus needed to trust in Jesus plus the ceremonial laws, including circumcision. Okay, verse six. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. To those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. Really quick, Paul is reinforcing he doesn't have fear of man. These influential people, like I'm not afraid of them. I'm not trying to please them. I'm trying to protect my spiritual sons and daughters in the faith from the gospel being watered down, being distorted, being added to, okay? And he says that these influential believers, probably including the apostles here, these influential believers, he said they added nothing to his gospel. They verified it. They said, yeah, everything that Paul is saying is the exact thing that we got from Jesus. His message of the gospel lines up perfectly with the one that Jesus in the flesh gave to us. So again, Paul's making this appeal to these these Christians who are following false teaching. He's saying, my gospel is the same one that Jesus gave these guys. They added nothing. They added nothing to it. Verse seven, keep reading here. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars like they're, 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 they're fathers in the faith and they seem to be, who seem to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was either eager to do. Okay, these false teachers, these false brothers, these false Christians, they're teaching that you needed Jesus plus the law, Okay teaching that you can make yourself pure and more acceptable to God. But the message of the gospel is that only by trusting in Christ's performance in your place can a person actually be pure and acceptable to God. Okay, I know that I've said this 100 times, I'm not gonna stop saying it because all of us have a really hard time believing this every moment of the day. If you examine your life, the things that you say, the things that you do, how often Have you ever thought about how often, how much time you spend trying to earn the approval of other people? Or better yet, have you you thought about how often, how much time you spend trying to earn the approval of God, trying to get him to bless you? Like, think about it. Like waking up in the morning and getting ready. I put on clean clothes and did my hair just like you guys. I didn't have to. I think we'd be shocked if we really had a sober view of ourselves. Here's something that we need to talk about because I've been hammering the law. These false teachers are saying Jesus plus the law. I've been hammering the law for like 
two messages now. <clears throat> Listen, I want to be really clear. The law isn't a bad thing. It's from God. The law's a really good thing. I think most of us have heard the Ten Commandments before, right? The law. They're a gift. Imagine if the world observed the Ten Commandments perfectly, how amazing it would be. It'd be awesome. The brokenness that each of us experience in our day-to-day life would be gone. The Ten Commandments aren't a bad thing, they're a gift, they're a beautiful thing. But the Ten Commandments don't exist to show man how to gain the approval of God. That's not what they exist for. Have you ever had a moment in your life when you realize your fly is down? Like literally, I'm not talking figuratively. And usually it's like, the first thought that goes through my brain is, how long has this thing been down? Is this, did I just come out of the bathroom? Did I just change my clothes? Like what's the deal with this? Or what about this? Have you ever like gone out to lunch and maybe you had a salad or a burger or something and five or six hours later, you recognize that there, are, there is a huge disgusting chunk of lettuce in between your teeth. <clears throat> that happens far too often too and you're like, oh man, that's been like five hours since I ate and nobody told me anything about this lettuce that's stuck between my teeth. My fly's been down for who knows how long and no one loved me enough to tell me, hey bro, X, Y, Z, like examine your zipper. You need to look, it's, not, it's open. <clears throat> I know I'm not the only one that's had a stupid experience like that, but then what happens? Someone comes to you in love, your rescuer, your redeemer, and they say, hey man, like, check out your zipper, check out your teeth, you have something. It's like a gift, they give you this gift, right? Making you aware. The law, the 10 commandments is a gift from God to let you know that your spiritual flies down. I mean, simply. It really is. It's, a, it's what makes you aware of your sinful condition. The law is how you know that your spiritual fly is down. It's how you know, it's the mirror that shows you there's something stuck between your teeth and you look ridiculous. <clears throat> the law is not a bad thing. Uh, look at Romans chapter seven, verse seven with me really quickly. Paul's writing this, he says, this idea about the law not being bad. He says, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He's basically saying I wouldn't become aware of sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Because the law is what makes you aware of your sin. Makes you aware of your condition, your broken, fallen, sinful condition. The law is what helps us determine our diagnosis. Okay, it's not the 10 steps to gain God's approval. It's not how to climb the ladder. Guys, anybody who looks at the law and says like, yeah, I, I think I'm doing pretty good. Like that pretty much sums up my life. If I were to go through, yeah, check, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, didn't do any of that. Always, yep, always obey. Yeah, that, but, but, you're like delusional, like <laughs> Legitimately. <clears throat> like, and here's the thing too. If you look at the law and you go, yeah, I might not have done that perfectly, but I can, like I can do that. If I try hard enough, dude, I can totally do that. Like you're missing it. You really have a, you have a I love you to tell you this, but you have a really ridiculous view of yourself. 
because the law exposes the sinner as being sinful. Do you guys ever have those moments when you're in school, like the panic moment when you walk into class and your teacher says something to the effect of like, uh, grab your pencil, grab your scantron, we're gonna have a test. And it's not a test like a midterm. It's not a final, like this is Jeannie's reality right now. It's not a final, it's not a midterm. It's like pop quiz test. You didn't see it coming. You didn't know you were gonna have it. Have you ever experienced that? <clears throat> okay, I can remember a handful of times in school where that would happen. And I would start like thinking like, okay, don't, don't freak out. Like you haven't even seen the questions of the test yet. And then the questions come on and I scan it really quickly and I go, there's no chance. Like, I'm gonna fail this. And, and I take it and I walk out and I go, I'm 100% convinced that I got zero of those right. I have no chance at this. Have you ever walked out of that room knowing you failed the test? Ugh, that feeling sucks so bad, it's awful. Anybody in their right mind, when they're confronted with the 10 Commandments, when they're confronted with the law, they don't go like, oh yeah, I think I did good. They go, they walk out of the room going, I failed that test. Man. Like, I've definitely lied. Wrong. The, uh, the whole, like, murdering thing, yeah, maybe, maybe nobody in the room has taken a life. Maybe. But Jesus said, even if you have hate in your heart towards someone, you've murdered them in your heart. Wrong. Adultery. Statistically, there's probably adultery in the room. But let's just say that that hasn't happened. Jesus, what did Jesus say? Even if you've looked at a person lustfully in your heart, you've committed adultery in them, with them in your heart. Like, the law exposes our brokenness. It's not a bad thing, though. Obeying God is not a bad thing. It's a great thing, friends. Paul is not anti-law. He's pro-gospel, but he's not anti-law. And neither is Jesus. Jesus didn't come to like destroy the law, to get rid of it, to like go, that was Old Testament, this is New Testament law, no. He didn't come to get rid of it, he came to fulfill it. He says it in, in Matthew chapter 5, 17, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to accomplish it, to obey it perfectly all the requirements of the law. They reveal your failure, my failure. They reveal our sin, the specific ways that we have fallen short, the specific ways that we have not reflected the image of God to the creation that he put into our care. That includes people. We sin against him, we sin against people. <clears throat> the specific ways that we've fallen short of God's perfect standard. The law shows us how needy we are. The law shows us how helpless we are to actually be holy. But the gospel, the most important thing, the foundation of the Christian's life, the gospel on the other hand says, yes, you have failed. Really, royally, <laughs> like, Yes, you failed, but Jesus has done it. Jesus took that test and he aced it. No wrong answers, perfectly flawless. He obeyed the law perfectly. And it's Jesus alone that makes a person clean. He alone fulfilled the law. So the other apostles, 
the guys that spent time with Jesus in the flesh, taught the message of the gospel by Jesus, given the assignment sent by Jesus himself to proclaim those good, that good news, the apostles, them accepting Titus, this Gentile Christian, it was proof of this. It was proof that a person becomes spiritually clean and acceptable through what Jesus has done, not through any deeds or rituals added on top of a sinful life. You guys ever go camping? <clears throat> uh, I remember when we used to go camping all the time as a kid. Mom and dad would take us to the Sierras all the time. And I remember there'd be a handful of times where we would go hiking. As a kid, it gets hot and you're kind of like, okay, am I really gonna do this? But I remember we'd be tired and exhausted, but it would still be fun. And we'd come to like a little stream. And it would be like the coldest water you could imagine, but the sun's beating down, it's like July and we had just got done hiking miles in the mountains, high elevation, and you're so thirsty. I remember Pop would take his backpack off and he'd have this filter, this water filter, and he'd put a little hose in the, in the stream and he'd filter the water and he'd put it in the water bottle and it was the best water you've ever tasted in your life. It's mountain spring water. It's not like the fake stuff that Arrowhead bottles at like tap water in Anaheim. It's like straight from the glacier. It's dripping down. You filter it. It's perfectly cold and you're so thirsty, okay? Imagine if you and I are on that hike and I filter the water for you and I hand it to you. You're gonna be pumped to drink the best water ever, right? What if there was a little bit of pee in there? You like that transition? That was a good transition. If there was a little bit of pee in that water, would you still be excited to drink it? I don't think you would. What if I, what if I added more water though? Of course not. Of course you don't wanna drink the pee water because no matter how much water I add to the pee water, it's still pee water, okay? Adding more water doesn't do anything. It's still pee water, you don't wanna drink it. Okay, adding good deeds on top of a sinful life doesn't change the fact that it's a sinful life. Tom Logue is pee water, like legitimately. No matter how many good deeds I add to my resume, I still reject him all the time. I'm still like an imperfect, desperate in need of the grace of God man. Only Jesus can cleanse you. That's Paul's message. If you add to the gospel, you destroy it. What Paul's saying is that the gospel, it frees you, check this out, it frees you from being a slave to the law. Look back at verse four with me. In chapter two, verse four. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom, that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery. What does it mean to be a slave to the law? Well, both the false teachers in Galatia and Paul told the Christians to obey the 10 commandments. Remember, they're not bad, they're good. The, the, they both said obey the 10 commandments, but for totally different reasons and motives. Completely different reasons and motives. Think about this. If you obey the law to earn the approval of God, what happens when you inevitably fail to obey? Well, if you're, if you're obeying the law to get his approval and then you fail to obey the law, you lose his approval. Then you feel guilty. 
then you try harder. And then what happens? You fail inevitably again and you lose his approval and you try harder and then you fail again and then you lose his approval and then you try harder and then you, you see this, the cycle continues. You're a slave to the impossible process of earning God's approval. But that's why the gospel is such good news, guys. The gospel is good news because Jesus fulfilled the law for you in your place and now you're free to obey because you're not trying to obey the law to get God's approval. Jesus gives you the perfect approval for you. He earned it for you. God can't be more, God the Father cannot be more pleased than Jesus than he is. Jesus lives the perfect life that you should have lived, that I should have lived. He dies the death that you and I deserve in our place and then he credits that righteousness to us. Do you see this? You're free to obey, not to gain God's approval, but because you already have it. And you simply want to please the one who gave himself for you, the one who secured God's approval for you eternally, the one who showers you with grace, getting what you don't deserve. So I'm going to wrap up here. I'll call the band up. Come on up, guys. So I have to ask you this question. It's really important. Like, are you a slave? Are you trying to earn God's love? Are you trying to earn his approval? Are you trying to earn his blessing? Like, don't gloss over this. Don't think about what the right answer is because then you will never actually address your heart and that's what God cares about. Are you a slave? Are you trying to earn God's approval, his love, his blessing? Like, are you believing the gospel today? Maybe, you're, maybe this whole time we've been together, you've been thinking about how somebody else needed to hear something. What about you? Like, what about you? Are you gonna miss out on what God has for you, the freedom he wants to provide you? Are you believing the gospel today or are you tired? Are you numb? Or maybe you're frustrated. You're, I almost said pissed off from the pulpit. That would've been bad. Maybe you're frustrated, like you're, you're, you're frustrated with your circumstances. Things aren't going the way that you want them to. Or maybe you're depressed. Or you're lonely. Or you're isolated. Or worse yet, are you apathetic? I just don't care anymore, man. Or maybe it's not even God's approval that you're working for, that you're slaving for, that you're trying to earn. Maybe it's man's. And you're shackled. Guys, the gospel really is good news for everybody, regardless of where you're at. It's good news for you every day gospel is the good news that yeah you failed the pop quiz you failed the test but God loves you so he takes the test for you and gives you his A plus because you couldn't answer it right you couldn't answer the questions right most of us uh, we're afraid of being confronted with our failures we're afraid of being kind of told the areas where we are um, 
less than perfect. It's not fun. When I examine Jesus' life, it's so clear to see, like, he made a lot of people really angry because he confronted people with their failure to live up to God's standard. But here's the thing. If you read the Gospels, you see people like prostitutes and tax collectors, the people that were like the, 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 the people that were like cast out of society, the, the, the people that were looked down upon the most. They were like, yeah, like, dude, he, what he's saying about me is totally right. I've totally failed that test. But the Pharisees and the religious people, their response to Jesus confronting them with their failures was, how dare you? How dare you tell me I'm a bad person? I pray every day. I'm an American. They give justification. I do these good things. Like, there's modern day Pharisees, friends. They would have said, how dare you? And then what do they do? They go, this guy Jesus, we've got to get rid of him. I don't like his message. Because the gospel is offensive to the prideful. Because the gospel says you need saving. Think about this. The gospel implies that at a heart level, you're not a good person. And we like to feel good about ourselves. And when anybody tries to make us feel other words, our response usually isn't like, thank you. It's like, crucify him. Guys, the gospel, it says that you and I are so bad that God, perfect creator of all things, had to die for your failures, for my failures. But don't you see the beauty in that? Like, don't you see the beauty in that? Friends, you will never truly see the intensity of God's love for you until you first see how unlovely you really are. It's that kind of love, it's that kind of gracious and intense love that transforms you. It changes you. Friends, it's not what I do on top of a sinful life that makes me, like, lovely. It's him loving me despite my unloveliness that actually makes me lovely. And the same thing's true of you. Jesus' love is more than just an idea or a concept that we talk about at a church gathering. Jesus proves his love. He demonstrates his love. It's an act. And Jesus proved his love at the cross. Like, picture the cross. It's Jesus' proving ground. It's his declaration, him proving his love for you. And again, the cross isn't an idea, it's not a concept. He was beaten. You ever seen a man get beaten? Like, I've seen people get, like, really hurt bad in person, and it's like, it, it, it turns your stomach. People's flesh gets ripped open. I saw a guy get piled-drived on, on a table one time. His whole face almost got ripped off. It was disgusting. 
Jesus willingly goes to the cross, subjects himself to torture, to being beaten brutally, his flesh ripped apart, the crown of thorns shoved into his skull, bloody. It's not a concept, it's a real thing. At the cross, Jesus made himself really unlovely to make you lovely. Do you see this? Paul's telling us that if your faith is in the gospel alone, if you're, if, you, if you're trusting in the gospel alone, now you're free to obey him. But if you're trusting in your performance, hey, I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as them. I don't do what they do. If you're trusting in your performance, you're not free. You're a slave to the law. You're a slave to a master that you can never please. Like you've already failed the test and you're taking more, you're like, you're answering more questions. You've already failed. And the standard of the law is perfection. When you put your faith and your trust in your performance, you're a slave to a master that you cannot, pers- you cannot ever possibly please. So tonight, I wanna encourage you, I wanna invite you to enjoy the perfection of Jesus in your place. The only chance you and I have. Not to just rehearse the concept. Not to be ready to give an answer on the test. But to taste and see that the Lord is good. To experience it. To enjoy the peace and the rest and the gift of God's grace in the gospel. Like that's why the church exists. We're not here to just like hang out. Yes, I love being with you guys. I wanna be with you. I wanna laugh together and cry together and eat together and play together and pray together. But the church is so much more than that. The foundation of the church is the gospel of Jesus. This isn't a glorified social club, although we're social. It's not like we're gonna gather together to do these religious duties to present ourselves more pleasing to God and to our city. That's BS, that's bull. No, we're here to enjoy. We're the people that failed the test. We're the ones, that, we're the sick ones that need the physician. The foundation, the central, like everything of the church, of the people of God is the gospel of Jesus and nothing else. So tonight, And every night, but tonight specifically, I wanna invite you to enjoy the peace that you have in the gospel, the rest that you have. And I want for our church to like forever grow in our awareness of our need for it. Like where we never get content going like, yeah, I think I've kind of made it. But we'd go, oh, like Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm, I'm learning more about my brokenness and in the process, I'm learning more about God's radical love for me personally that covers my, my failures. I don't want us to ever stop being blown away by this, by the intensity and the power of the love of our Savior Jesus. I wanna pray for us. get the sense that there is uh, that some of us are that there are things that come to our mind of, of 
um, things that we have done or things that have been done to us that we don't feel that Jesus can redeem. Or maybe that, that he doesn't, that you, you believe that he doesn't want to redeem those things. Like it's like you're too, you're too dirty or the thing that you have done is too far gone. Like you, you're, the gospel's for other people. The scandal of God's grace is for others and not for you. And I want you to know tonight that's a lie. Like it's a lie from the pit of hell. It supposes that Jesus didn't know before he went to the cross. Because when he went to the cross, he said it's finished. It covered it. And it also supposes that he's not powerful enough to cover it. So I, God, I pray for those of us in the room that, um, that feel like the kind of avalanche or endless waterfall of your grace is somehow like doesn't apply to them. Or maybe they're so concerned with the sins of other people in their life that, um, that they're failing to realize how desperately they need your grace. And in the process, they're missing out on how much you love them. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, open each of our hearts and each of our minds to the reality of how desperate we are for your grace because we've failed to test but how radically loved we are and that you willingly laid down your life for us to credit us with your perfect record. Like we're clean now. <laughs> so would you minister to us, Holy Spirit? Would you help us to see that your grace isn't gonna run out anytime soon? And I pray that it's, that it's by your grace alone that that was what would motivate us to obey you because we're free to. We don't have to obey you to earn salvation. We don't have to obey you to earn your blessing. We've been blessed. We have your favor. We don't have to do something to earn your favor. We have it. His name is Jesus. So I pray that we would cling to the cross and enjoy you and experience the peace and the rest that every soul in this room is longing for. That's why the gospel is good news. Teach us, Spirit, teach us about the gospel in ways that my feeble words can't. I love you and I trust you. Amen. Amen.